nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, it's an interview-only program, as I'm taking a little bit of time for myself. First, we hear from Beverly Finlay-Kaneko, recently back from Japan. She's going to provide us with an update on what's happening in that country now, including the most extensive information yet available on the recent death of Japanese TV journalist Masaki Iwaji. Was it suicide or possibly something more sinister? We'll hear Beverly's information and insights on that case, as well as her report on having gone on a mountain retreat with Fukushima mothers and their children, and how the nation's turn to the political right is impacting the anti-nuclear movement. Then we discuss nukes in space with award-winning journalist Carl Grossman, who charts the arc from Ronald Reagan's Star Wars proposals to the recent breakthrough in solar-powered spaceflight that once again gives lie to the claims of the nuclear industry. We used an excerpt from this interview during our Hiroshima Day program, but Carl is such a font of wisdom and just knows so much about these issues that I couldn't resist giving you the full interview this week. Today is Tuesday, September 16, 2014, and here is this week's Nuclear Hot Seat. Many who take an interest in Fukushima and the anti-nuclear movement in Japan were deeply saddened to hear of the death of Asahi TV news director Masaki Iwaje on August 29th. Police reports apparently list the cause of death as suicide, and a story by Awaji's friend, nonfiction writer Yasushi Nishimuta, which appeared on the website Tokyo Breaking News, details why this is probably true. Still, many who knew Iwaji-san personally have continued to express their doubts about the suicide claim on social media and in private conversations. Iwaji-san was known for taking a keen interest in the human rights issues and corruption surrounding the Fukushima accident and its aftermath. As a journalist, he was unique because he managed, by sheer determination, to get some rare TV coverage of Fukushima issues on a national Japanese TV network, as well as one of the more popular news programs in Japan, Hodo Station. Today's interviewee, Beverly Finlay Kaneko, is just back from Japan where she has some extraordinary information dealing with this case. Beverly is a journalist, educator, founder of the NPO Families for Safe Energy, as well as co-producer of the Nuclear Hot Seat series Voices from Japan. She used to live in Japan and now lives in Southern California, where she works to create bridges of understanding between the two countries in order to raise awareness about Fukushima and help the children affected by the ongoing nuclear disaster. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Beverly, could you give us a little background on some of the issues Awaji-san covered? Yes, I can. First, Libby, I want to express my husband Yuji's and my sincerest condolences to Iwaji-san's family for their loss. And for the Japanese news media, Iwaji-san was the only journalist tackling the nuclear issue in prime time. And for that reason, his death, whether he did it by his own hand or he was murdered, it is a tragic loss. 
We here at Nuclear Hot Seat, of course, echo your condolences. And to give our listeners a sense as to Iwaji-san's importance, could you tell us about some of the coverage that he was providing in Japan? Sure. I'll tell you about a couple of things, recent things that he did. He was responsible for this year's 311 Hodo Station coverage of the pediatric thyroid cancer issue. And it featured a mother of a cancer victim who agreed to appear with her face and voice disguised, among other things. And more recently, his August 13th segment covered a sloppy decontamination job in Tamura City. And you might remember that that city was formerly in the exclusion zone about 13 miles from Fukushima Daiichi, uh, but its evacuation order was lifted on April 1st, so they're trying to move people back into that area. Can you give us a little more detail on the decontamination piece that Iwaji-san did? Sure. Uh, the segment highlighted the multiple layers of subcontractors, which has been covered in a lot of different places, and it covered the lack of oversight due to that system, which led to contaminated debris like a bicycle and roofing material being buried deep in a hole on site next to a farmhouse. So in other words, the debris was not removed at all. It was just buried and disguised. Right, in a really sloppy fashion. And in the segment, uh, again, voices are disguised and faces are blurred. Iwaji interviews a worker from the bottom rung of subcontractors, and that worker was a whistleblower. He says his only order was to make the site look tidy for an official photo. Mm. There are city officials shown in the segment, and strangely, they're the only ones not wearing masks. They are taking photographs of the debris uncovered by the contractors, which I assume were hired by the Asahi TV Hodo Station investigative team. And clarify for the listeners what Hodo Station means. Hodo Station is the name of the television program that he was on. Hodo Station literally means news station. The word Hodo means news. And, in fact, the original program was called News Station. And it's a news magazine program with some timely news as well as longer investigative news pieces. I would equate it to something like 2020 or 60 Minutes here. It must have been a challenge to produce this kind of a segment. What sort of trouble did he run into along the way? Yes, the episode was a really difficult one for Iwaji-san to put together and get on the air. An initial segment showing the leftover debris aired in early December, but the investigative piece did not air until August, eight months later. The footage is from wintertime. It was taken in December 2013, and Iwaji's friend, a freelance journalist named Noriyuki Imanishi was apparently with him at the site. And Imanishi describes the December 19th visit in his December 21st blog post. We'll have a link to the full blog post up on Nuclear Hot Seat under this episode, number 169. But give us a sense as to what he wrote about in that entry on December 21st. Imanishi refers to an incident where the quote-unquote Asahi reporter, assumedly Iwaji, asked the police investigator who appeared to be in charge what the next step in the investigation would be. The officer butted Iwaji's microphone with his elbow and knocked quote-unquote the reporter into the mud and caused injuries that required a visit to the hospital. Yuji and I actually met Mr. Iwaji personally in January to talk about coming to California to research San Onofre and about the Ronald Reagan sailors. And at that meeting, he told us about the police incident. He said that the police in Tokyo, in the big city, 
are gentlemen compared to their brutish countryside counterparts. Why do you think it took so long for the investigative piece to air? Well, this is speculation, and many think that the damning evidence of the shoddy decontamination work appearing in a national television format kept the program from being aired for several months. At least $33 billion of the cleanup is going to be billed to taxpayers who will want to know where their money is going. And, of course, taxpayers will not want that money to be lining the pockets of organized crime and large construction firms. This episode makes a firm case that the taxpayers are being defrauded. Also, Iwaji wasn't feeling the love at his TV network. According to Imanishi's blog on September 5th, after Iwaji's death, Iwaji himself stated, There are two types of people at the network, Asahi those who are critical of nuclear power, and those who aren't. It's tough, but anchor Ichiro Furutachi has given me his support. The resulting decontamination segment is only about eight minutes long and seems to me to have been edited to the bare bones. I didn't detect even a mention of the word radiation, even though it's obvious that the debris that was sitting around on 3-11-2011 and was buried by subcontractors, must have been radioactive. I wonder if the timing of the episode airing in August might have had anything to do with Mr. Iwaji's death. Well, it's hard to tell. Just over two weeks after the segment aired, he was found dead, having taken sleeping pills, and he lit a coal briquette, and taped off the doors of a third-floor bedroom in his home. And this all happened in the middle of the summer heat. So the briquette was to create carbon monoxide so that he could not breathe? Right. It was carbon monoxide poisoning. What was the reporting like on this death, this very tragic death? Well, there were a lot of different layers of information coming out. There was nothing official. So let me go over a few of the things that have come over the Internet and through personal contacts over the last couple of weeks. Most recently, a friend of his, Yasushi Nishimuta, who is a freelance reporter, he wrote about the circumstances of Iwaji's death for a website called Tokyo Breaking News. An acquaintance of Nishimuta's met Iwaji on August 27th, and that acquaintance said that Iwaji was his old self, and he was planning to start tackling the Fukushima issue again in September. But on the 28th, Iwaji called the TV station saying he didn't feel well and he wouldn't be in. Reportedly, his speech was slurred so he might have already had taken the sleeping pills. According to police reports, he died on the 29th. Was there anything else going on that could have explained Mr. Iwaji deciding to take his life, if that's indeed what happened? Mr. Nishimuta, who again was his friend, he shares details about Iwaji's private life that could have explained his death. Both men were separated from their wives and children, and they'd often get together and discuss their troubles. Nishimuta was in the process of writing about divorce, and he wanted to interview Iwaji, but Iwaji was going through a difficult time with the court-mandated arbitration, which is often very difficult for the men involved, and he declined to be interviewed. Nishimuta thinks that the pressures of living apart from his children his really tough work schedule, often he worked until midnight, and then the dark nature of uncovering the evil underbelly of the nuclear industry and the shady practices of subcontractors could have gotten to be too much for one human being to handle. As a friend of Iwaji, he felt that he had to come forward and share another perspective amid a chorus of voices that have been speculating that the death could have been murder. 
What do you think is responsible for the continuing echoes in the echo chamber of social media about his death, even though this friend has now come out with a plausible explanation for suicide? Well, I think it's very easy to understand why people feel that way. The odd silence after Iwaji's death was not helpful. There has been no official news coverage of his death and no official mention on the Hodo Station program, and there was no obituary. One nonfiction writer argues that Iwaji was a private citizen and that his death was private business, and therefore it was not newsworthy. But I kind of think that as an important director of a huge primetime news program and the only person covering nuclear He was indeed a very public person, and his death and his life's work should have been acknowledged. In fact, the only indications that something was off served to fan the flames of speculation. After Iwaji's death, Hodo Station anchor Ichiro Furutachi and his co-anchor appeared in all black on one evening broadcast, and that was taken as an apparent nod to the former director. Also, a strange caption appeared stating that, quote-unquote, time for nuclear news has run out. Please accept our apologies. The caption was strangely phrased and strangely punctuated, and some thought that it could have been another nod to Iwaji's death. So this was a caption to a news story, or it was just something that ran in a scroll underneath the image that was already there? Do you know that? Uh, Yes, it was actually above the image, and it was kind of like a superimposed, I I don't want to say a subtitle because it was above the image, and it said really something like, time for nuclear news has run out, please accept our apologies, and it was a little bit of a play on words that took the sounds from his name and sort of combined them to, well, a lot of people think sort of contrived this secret message. Many people online and in private conversations have expressed their disbelief that this extremely forthcoming gregarious journalist could have taken his own life. What is out there that supports their position that, maybe he was done in and this wasn't of his own choosing? Well, some people mentioned promises to get together for drinks and snacks, and they've posted recent photos of the director enjoying himself at a pub. Um, He had plans for future projects, including a segment on the Ronald Reagan sailors that are filing suit against TEPCO. I actually sent him links to your program and also Mary Beth Brangan's video interviews. Yuji and I met with him in December, and we've been in touch with him by telephone and email. And chillingly, a photojournalist friend of ours who documents Fukushima said that he and Iwaji recently assured each other while they were drinking, whatever happens, I want you to know that I would never commit suicide. And this is a refrain that has been repeated by other people, too, not just somebody that we happen to know firsthand. Aside from the various personal accounts, there was the trouble that Iwaji had had with the decontamination segment and the police brutality. And then a magazine called Flash, which apparently was going to run a big article about his death, and it was actually on the cover of the magazine, they mysteriously pulled that magazine from distribution. It was supposed to be the September 23rd edition, which should have been on the shelves on September 9th. And all they did was state that there was a quote-unquote mistake in an article, and so that got people thinking too. And uh, actually... Yuji managed to buy a copy through Amazon because they apparently didn't stop the distribution to Amazon. And he found that in the magazine there was actually a whole segment on the recent photos, the nude actress scandal with Jennifer Lawrence and Kirsten Dunst, etc. 
and they were in there in their full glory. And most certainly that was actually why the magazine had to be pulled because that would have been major lawsuits. So we have no resolution in this case, and it's not likely we're going to be getting any further information on it. The unfortunate thing is that it leaves a hole in the coverage that people were getting on Fukushima in the media in Japan. Can you give us an idea of this bigger picture as regards mass media and their coverage of nuclear issues in Japan? Well, this disturbing story is playing out against a backdrop of an increasingly difficult atmosphere for the anti-nuclear movement in Japan. The mood ranges from complete apathy to official allusions to further restricting free speech. Bookshops used to have large sections devoted to the nuclear issue, but they've now cleared that space for books on war and militarization on both sides of the issue, not necessarily promoting it, but there's that that big debate about remilitarization. Furthermore, the mainstream Asahi Shimbun and the Shukan Asahi Weekly and TV Asahi's Hodo Station have become the target of bashing by other media outlets for their reporting. It has been rumored even that the Hodo Station anchor, Mr. Furutachi's job is on the line, despite the popularity of his show. And the Asahi Shimbun, as you know, has been bashed for publishing portions of the Yoshida testimony. They had some misinterpretations. And another problem with the Asahi Shimbun that has come out as a target of bashing was some interviews that were done on the comfort woman issue that appeared over 23 years ago. So they've gone and dug up a very over two-decade-old problem to demonstrate just how horrible Asahi Shimbun is. And, of course, Asahi Shimbun has been one of the better sources that has been relied on for nuclear hot seat to get us on-the-ground information about what's happening in Japan. So it seems that there is a concerted effort to discount the more... I would say fair-minded, they might say liberal media, that has been going into the nuclear issue in some detail. Yeah, I would believe so. Exactly. I've also read that recently the government hinted at restricting anti-nuclear and anti-government demonstrations when they discussed plans to regulate quote-unquote hate speech aimed at Koreans. Though what the connection is absolutely eludes me. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about this? Yes, Libby. It is extremely bizarre that ultra-rightists and anti-nuclear protesters would be considered in the same sentence by the government mouthpiece. But the government's shift to the right has actually made ultra-rightists even braver and their loud protests against Koreans have become increasingly offensive. And this has been criticized by the United Nations. One government official lumped the vicious anti-Korean protests together with the boisterous anti-government and anti-nuclear rallies that happen usually on Friday nights. That official said that both of those types of protests harm Japan's image and make it difficult for government workers to do their jobs, and that both should be restricted. The government has since issued a retraction of the statement, but the beast has really revealed what's inside of its belly. It's just like when Finance Minister Taro Aso said that Japan should take a page from Hitler's notebook and make changes quietly before the population notices. Again, his statement was retracted, but the actions of the government since then have borne out his words. Abe's government would like nothing more than to silence the anti-nuclear and anti-war demonstrations, and they have most certainly officially considered redlining them along with the hate-speaking ultra-rightists. It seems 
extremely odd that peaceful anti-nuclear protests are seen in the same light as the ultra-rightists who promote racist violence. Yes, and it's also strange because the ultra-rightists have always been part of the scene in Japan. Ever since I first went there 30 years ago, they've always been noisy around the seat of government and at all hours of the day. In one situation, I remember interviewing an official at the Ministry of Education for the Chronicle of Higher Education many years ago. There was a huge black ultra-rightist sound truck outside, and they were protesting the inclusion of the comfort women issue in textbooks. And the speaker was amplified so loudly that I could barely make out my recording of the interview later. Plus, I got a headache. The anti-nuclear and anti-war protests, on the other hand, they occur after hours from 6 to 8 p.m. on Friday nights only. And yes, they do get a bit noisy. I totally agree. They have drums and there's even a man who blows on a conch shell. But the protesters are all well-mannered and they're friendly. It reminds me of when we did our first protest after Fukushima. I think it was the first year anniversary. It took place at San Onofre, which was still in operation at that time. And it was like they had the Marines from Camp Pendleton and helicopters overhead and police cars and paddy wagons and the sort. And I think that the protesters were outnumbered something like four or five to one. And we looked at each other and said, wait a minute, you don't understand. We're peaceful. We're not going to have a violent response to this, but that was not the way it was perceived. Now, you were in Japan this summer and had a chance to connect with people from Fukushima. Yes, I spent some time with a group of Fukushima kids and parents on a retreat this summer. It was really fun, and the kids were really adorable and full of energy, but... It was also kind of odd. I, I had an odd feeling about these families having to leave their homes for a few days of outdoor play and, you know, just the space to talk about what's on their minds about the health and safety of their own children. We aren't religious, but I felt like we were a band of so-called kakure Christians or hidden Christians of a long time ago in Japan, people of the Christian faith had to hide their faith or they would have been executed by the government. So I kind of felt like that, like we were this hidden band of Christians. We were at a retreat high in the mountains in a ski resort off season. So we could express our beliefs and our concerns in that small circle. But when we go back to real life, and this is for the families there and also myself among my friends in Tokyo, um, we're closeted. Can you give us a specific example? Well, at one point I was taking pictures and I handed one of the moms my business card for Families for Safe Energy. And I explained that she could look into some of our activities on our Facebook page. And she got really nervous, and she said, don't post the photos of the kids. I assured her that I understood where she's coming from and that I would never even consider posting the pictures. But I wanted to share them with the leader of their program so he could share them on their private group. On a very deep and personal level, these families are experiencing marginalization and restrictions on their free thoughts and speech. They have to live closeted lives in order to cope from day to day, which I felt like it's already leaving psychological scars on some of the victims. It was very apparent with a few of the people who were there. Taking any kind of action to protect their kids sets them apart from the mainstream and it's a really careful existence at home for them to avoid criticism and ostracism. It seems that there must have been a deep connection between Masaki Iwaji and these families for him to be so dedicated to bringing their stories to light in the national media in a way that nobody else was doing. Yeah, I 
really can feel why Iwaji-san, in his solitary mission, his dogged attempt to bring some of that darkness of Fukushima, whether it be this thyroid issue or the decontamination problems, he tried to bring that darkness to the lights of prime time. And I can see how he would feel a deep empathy for the families and the children that are left to their own devices in an atmosphere of denial. One can only hope that there is another journalist within the Japanese journalistic society, within their press club, within their interconnect of networks and newspapers and magazines, who has the courage, the wisdom, and the foresight to step forward and attempt to fill his space to help the people of Fukushima get their truth out to the rest of the world. Yes, it's actually what I think of as a boots-on-the-ground mission. These journalists have to do what he did and get out there and report the stories. They can't sit in the comfort of the Foreign Correspondents Club in Tokyo and listen to whatever groups. They have to get out there and they have to talk to the people. And there's a lot of that done in the independent media Ryuichi Hirokawa, who we've had on the program here, and various other people have done wonderful work. But unfortunately, their messages don't reach a large enough audience. And these stories really need to get onto primetime TV, and they need to be in people's living rooms. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, thank you so much for again being our guest, our boots on the ground in Japan for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Before we get to our interview with Carl Grossman, I need to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations, yes, yours, to keep us going and growing. You can make a single donation or small recurring payments or just put us on your year-end gift-giving list, something as small as the equivalent of taking us out for a cup of Starbucks Five bucks a month will go a long way towards helping us meet the expenses that we incur every month to bring this show to you. Donating is easy and secure by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red Donate button. Whatever you can do to help, many thanks. Our second interview this week is with Carl Grossman, who is an award-winning investigative reporter with more than 40 years of experience. He is truly our movement's eminence grise, or great gray eminence. He knows where the story started, he knows all the footnotes, and he knows where the metaphoric bodies are buried. Carl is a professor of journalism at State University of New York College at Old Westbury and has authored six books, including Cover-Up, what you are not supposed to know about nuclear power. He also hosts the nationally aired TV program, Enviro Close-Up. Here is our full interview with Carl from Hiroshima Day. We talked about the dangers of nuclear power in space, as well as the recent breakthrough in solar-powered spaceflight that once again gives lie to the claims of the nuclear industry. Here's Carl. I've been investigating the use of nuclear power in space ever since the Challenger accident in 1986 because I broke the story in The Nation in 1986 of how the next mission of the ill-fated Challenger was to loft a plutonium-powered space probe. And if the accident had occurred not in January of 86 but May when that nuclear mission was planned, and that plutonium would have been uh, dispersed in fragments, vaporized like uh, so much of the Challenger. It wouldn't have been seven brave astronauts dying. There was going to be pounds and pounds of plutonium that potentially could have been released. So I've been on this story ever since then, and I've looked into there's been a variety of uh, nuclear shots. What are some of the other nuclear in space stories that have come up since you started covering this back in 86? Perhaps the most dangerous nuclear shot of them all in in recent times was the Cassini mission. That involved 75 pounds 
of plutonium. Why in the world are they shooting plutonium into space? We've used mostly these plutonium radioisotope thermoelectric systems or generators. The Soviets, now Russia, they prefer reactors. The claim had been that when you go far out into space, you'd need nuclear power. Post-Manhattan Project, when those behind that juggernaut looked for things to do with nuclear, food irradiation, nuclear power plants, nuclear-powered airplanes, and then nuclear in space. So it's been something that the U.S. and also the Soviet Union both have been very committed to for many years. We now have the situation with the Rosetta spacecraft. What is the importance and the significance of this particular craft? Here is the Rosetta, solar-powered, rendezvousing with a comet, doing it with solar energy. It's energized by solar panels. For years, for so many years, the claim has been beyond the orbit of Mars, we can't use anything but nuclear as a power source. Uh, Rosetta is showing that hundreds of millions of, we're talking about well over 300 million miles from space. Right now, Rosetta is in the midst of rendezvousing with this comet, getting its energy not from plutonium, not from a nuclear reactor, but solar panels, even though at that distance way out in the solar system, the sun is, in terms of the energy being sent out from the sun, a fraction of what it is here on Earth. So it's a, it's a real breakthrough, and it's a breakthrough being done by the European Space Agency. ESA stresses on its website that we do not have nuclear devices for space use, so we began developing solar for space, and they've succeeded. It sounds like these are incredibly sensitive and powerful panels. Might there be applications that we could use down here on Earth to speed our weaning ourselves from all things nuclear and switching over to solar? Yeah, well, these are high-efficiency panels that have been developed. But let me just, just add a wrinkle here. One of the bigger accidents, and this isn't an a matter of the sky is falling. The sky has, in fact, fallen a number of times with nuclear devices that have been put up into space. And the most serious of the accidents was the SNAP-9A accident back in 1964. It was a satellite energized with plutonium. It wasn't able to maintain its orbit. It came crashing down, disintegrating. Plutonium spread all around the planet. Indeed, Dr. John Goffman the late Dr. Goffman, University of California at Berkeley, long connected that disaster to a, an increase of lung cancer on Earth. Well, that incident, that event in 1964, caused NASA to develop photovoltaic panels for satellites. And in fact, the crossover to the use of solar power on homes and office buildings and so forth, directly related to a lot of the, the pioneer work by NASA caused by this plutonium accident. However, NASA and the space officials in the Soviet Union and Russia continued to insist, yes, we can, we can use solar for satellites, and all our satellites are now solar-powered, as is the International Space Station. But when we go out into space, we still have to use nuclear. Well, Rosetta shows not true that you can use solar, and back to NASA, right now, NASA has taken the lead from ESA. NASA has a mission way out to Jupiter called the Juno Space Probe. How is it being energized? Solar power. So as on Earth, solar power can easily serve as an alternative to dangerous nuclear power in space. That's so terrific! <laughs> <laughs> for it. It's kind of like, look, dudes, we can do this. Yes. I, again, accidents can happen and will happen when we put nuclear material overhead. In terms of the biggest accident regarding the Soviet Union was 1978. A Cosmos satellite energized with an actual nuclear reactor came crashing down on the Northwest Territories of Canada, leaving nuclear debris for hundreds of miles. This type of catastrophe, the SNAP-9A disaster, 
I mean, Newton's law of gravity still holds. What goes up can easily come down are unnecessary. We can explore space without threatening life on Earth with solar energy and other forms of benign energy. On Earth, too, we can have energy led by solar power that we can live with. To what extent, to your knowledge, is NASA pursuing this as a possibility? No, they already have. No, no, this is ESA that's done, that, that's done uh, Rosetta. Yeah, well, ESA has done Rosetta. Now, let me just add one other little note to this. One of the things that I kept wondering about was the question you earlier asked, why? For example, the, the Challenger, it was to launch a plutonium-powered space probe. This is the Ulysses mission to orbit the sun. Now, why would you need plutonium as a power source if you're orbiting the sun? You can't use solar panels. And I kept asking why. Well, one of the things you think of deep throat and the Watergate scandal, follow the money, follow the money. Who was producing these radioisotope thermoelectric generators? At that time, it was General Electric. Now they're being produced by Lockheed Martin. Then you have all these national nuclear laboratories around the United States, like Los Alamos and Oak Ridge and so forth, looking for more work, more contracts, more activity. So they have been pushing nukes in space. But then I got to the, the military connection. One of my books is about this. It's called Weapons in Space, and it's really all about the Star Wars program. And one element of the Star Wars program, which was never fully reported, was that it wasn't just lasers and hypervelocity guns and particle beams, which would be placed on battle platforms in space, but the energy to power those weapons was to be nuclear power. We would have, under the Ronald Reagan Star Wars plan, nuclear-powered battle platforms in space. And the thing about NASA is that through the years, it attempted to uh, partner itself with the Pentagon. Indeed, the shuttle was, uh, was designed in part for civilian exploration, but in large part for military use. If you recall, when the shuttles used to fly, there was these missions of seven colonels, and it was classified, and we never knew much about it. So that's one of the other reasons, and it's a big reason, why the United States and also the Soviets and Russia have been committed to nuclear and space, and why the main group, and this is a, a wonderful organization, which I helped launch, is called the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. And listeners can go to its website. It's space for the numeral four, peace.org, space for peace.org. And it, for years now, since 1992 when it was founded, has been challenging, has been fighting the use of nuclear in space and the the positioning, the placement of weapons in space. And as I say, there's a very, very intimate relationship. In fact, one of the generals who headed Star Wars years ago said at a conference, I, I quote this in, in my book, that without a light cord, an extension cord, bringing energy up to these battle platforms, how are we going to energize them? We need nuclear. And, of course, we don't. So has there been a turning away from the concept of nuclear in space, or do you expect there to be as a result of this very successful Rosetta spacecraft? Well, in space as on Earth, there is a raging fight between those who want to pursue safe energy solutions and those who want to threaten life itself with nuclear. I think the success of Rosetta showing that way out there near Jupiter, you can use, and the NASA space probe Juno flying right now is going to Jupiter, and Rosetta is in the neighborhood in terms of distance of Jupiter. Uh, this comet flies between Jupiter that it's going to be visiting, connecting with literally, in fact, it's going to send down a lander, which will drill into the comet. And uh, the purpose of this mission, incidentally, is to, and this is quite important, Comets were around at the beginning of the formation of the solar system, and what ESA is saying on its website, folks could go to the ESA website to get more details, that comets might be able to, we can find out what they're all about, provide us with the answer to some of the mysteries of 
the creation of the solar system, and the beginnings of life itself. Uh, in any case, the success of Rosetta hopefully would cause the space programs of the U.S. and and Russia to be done safely. However, you have these vested interests fighting for nuclear. For example, we're talking about a mission to Mars, and the uh, the head of NASA, he has been pushing for a nuclear-powered rocket to get to Mars. Uh, he argues that it would provide for a faster trip. However, the Japanese just two years ago showed that in space there is energy that can, in fact, be harnessed. The ions that are discharged from the sun can push a solar sail and push a spacecraft. And they sent, this is such a pilot project, an experimental spacecraft up, and the solar sail was unraveled, and it moved. And in the vacuum of space, you don't need much of a push to move quickly. So, again, the space as on Earth, you can use solar, and you can use solar way, way out there. You can use, and you couldn't exactly call it a solar wind, but it's a cousin to a solar wind, as on Earth we use very successful. I mean, wind is the largest growing alternative energy source at this point. I mean, it's 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 hells are popping with wind. Uh, and up in space, solar and, again, this variant of wind, and other scientists who are committed to energy we can live with, including some at NASA, have been working on safe means of both locomotion of spacecraft and energizing, providing power to a spacecraft. The problem is, again, in space, as on Earth, you have these, these nuclear interests. Lockheed Martin, the producer of these plutonium systems, which is the biggest arms manufacturer, incidentally, in the world. You have the National Nuclear Laboratories just looking for something to do. I don't believe this Star Wars craziness is over. I mean, under Ronald Reagan, it was being pushed intensely, and it was a central issue. However, President Obama has really campaigned against, initially, and this has continued, against the deployment of weapons in space. But who knows what's going to happen in 2016? We can easily revert to a very conservative government in this country. And as to the Soviet Union, or now Russia's decades-long nuclear program, civilian nuclear power, purportedly, is one of the major financial activities, exporting nuclear power plants of the Putin uh, regime in Russia. So who knows, you know, the direction that nuclear might take in space in Russia still. So just like the terrestrial fight against nuclear power, hopefully the side of light and the side of, 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 of good sense will win a fight between proponents of solar and other forms of energy in space on one hand and these people who push nuclear on the other hand. Uh, and just, just let me add, if I could, one other thing in terms of weapons in space that would be nuclear-powered. Imagine if you pursued this kind of scheme and you'd have these, as was to be built under Star Wars, nuclear-powered battle platforms in space. And surely, once we get up into space with weaponry, the Russians were going to follow, the Chinese would follow, who, who knows who else would be following uh, soon enough. And consider if there'd be an exchange up in space. I mean, at this point, there's so much debris in space that it's being monitored. When the shuttle used to fly, they had to figure out where debris might be so the shuttle could kind of weave up and out to get through that debris. There's been concerns about the flights of the, the flight of the International Space Station and it being hit with debris. There are tens of thousands of pieces of debris there, the junk left from the space activity up to now, nuts and bolts and, and bigger items. But if there was a shooting war up in space, we'd be left with so much debris that, that I mean, for people who are kind of like Star Trek-type boosters out there, we humanity would have to, we'd end up, we wouldn't be able to do what the Star the Trekkies would want and go, uh, explore the great beyond because there'd be so much debris blocking our path. And some of that debris, and we're talking here in terms of the Star Wars architecture with nuclear-powered battle platforms, would be falling back to Earth. What a mess. 
So, again, that's why the organization is the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Space should be weapons-free, and it should be nuclear-free for all our futures and the futures of our children and their children. And now at least we have the hope that with the success of Rosetta, the alternative will be there, it will be clear, and at least there's something we can point to that's beyond theory, but it's practical. Yeah, well, I'm, the Rosetta success contradicts the claims made through the years that, no, no, way out there, hundreds of millions of miles, how can you use solar? You could use solar, and hopefully the success of the Juno, this NASA space mission, way out to Jupiter. Uh, I mean, the, the, the other shot in 1986 that was supposed to be done with a shuttle, this was going to be a, another shuttle, not the Challenger, but in the same period was the Galileo mission with 50 pounds of plutonium on it, and that space probe was to be sent way out to Jupiter, and there, there was a major lawsuit in Washington, D.C., brought by opponents of the use of nuclear in space and people challenging the Galileo shot. And the folks from NASA and the U.S. Department of Energy, I mean, literally swore in this federal court trial that, no, we must use nuclear on the Galileo mission because we're trying to get to Jupiter. You can't use solar on a mission to Jupiter. It's too far away. Well, here, not that many years later, NASA is using solar power for a mission to Jupiter. Again, it could be done, and it can be done very, very far. And, and indeed, there's, in the current issue of Space News, they're talking about a mission to Pluto. And we're talking way, way out to the littlest of planets. Originally, it was planned with the use of plutonium power. But there's a shortage of this plutonium-238, which is the isotope of plutonium used on space shots, as distinct from plutonium-239, which is what you make nuclear weapons with and so forth. It's a variant. It's, it's hotly radioactive as well, in fact, even more so than 239. And the consideration now by, by NASA, this, again, this is a story in space news, is to use solar on Pluto missions. So Rosetta shows, Juno will show, that you can explore space safely. You don't have to endanger life on Earth while we're exploring space. That was award-winning investigative reporter Carl Grossman, always one of my favorite interviewees here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Activist shout-out to all of you marching, chanting, yelling, screaming, demonstrating, hoo-ha, members of our community who are going to be participating in the September 21st People's Climate March, especially in New York City. Godspeed and goddess speed to you all. Nuclear radiation is the big white elephant in the climate change living room, the topic they don't want to discuss because they're still hoping nuclear can bail them out of the climate-changing energy mess we've all gotten ourselves into. But, Ollie, it ain't going to work that way, and we're the ones who know it and have to bring it to their attention. There's going to be a big contingent of our people in New York City and at local marches in places like San Diego and beyond. To all of you who will be out there and marching and chanting and making our presence known, May you make the impact that puts our issues front and center in the sustainable energy agenda and takes nuclear off that table for good. We will have a follow-up report on the march, hopefully ready in time for next week's show. Hey, John Stewart. John Stewart. Did you catch the Daily Show with John Stewart on Wednesday, September 10? I nearly fell off my chair because the man mentioned nukes not once, but twice. He said the word nukes, the actual word, twice. All right. Admittedly, the first time he used it in the colloquial sense in putting down the video command headquarters of the NFL, not exactly being a place from which they launched nukes. Okay, fine. But in his second segment, about the possible Scottish secession from England, 
He talked about oil off the coast and the British nuclear fleet being stationed in Scotland and then made a joke about Dick Cheney getting all excited over a country that has both oil and nukes and got a big laugh with it. And you know, this isn't ego, but I've got to wonder, is the nuclear hot seat Twitter campaign working? Have we raised consciousness or at least visibility of our issues enough that The Daily Show is testing the waters through semantics and Dick Cheney references? John did get big laughs on both mentions. So, John, Booby, it's good for all of us. So all of you out there in podcast land, keep those tweets, retweets, and favorites coming. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 16, 2014. Thanks to my interviewees and all those who work behind the scenes to make this program happen, especially Sean Arclight, Joni Ray, as well as to all of you who donate to help keep this program going. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, and we're going to be going out on critical mass from Armageddon the Living End by Halevi and Grady. This is the nuclear climax of the show, sung by the devil. Children yearning to be free Have no fear, just follow me Cause if the world's about to blow Ain't no place left for you to go To the critical mass, all accommodations gonna be first class. Boogie down to the critical mass. You've got my word, it's gonna be a gas. Harmonics of demonic strike a chord to blow your mind. It's Satan orchestrating to deliver mankind. No praying now. No saying now. There's no desire. Your hands to the critical mass, the chain reaction's gonna be a blast. Boogie down to the critical mass, the prayer you're praying's gonna be your last. The rupture at the rapture separates you from your soul. No way to see eternity, and that is my goal. No praying now. No staying now. There's no Don't back away, cause I'm on the level. Is it God you want, or are you looking for the devil? Join the procession since time began. Boogie with your boogeyman. No hearts, no wings, no quiet saints. No loves, no hates, no pearly gates. Man, it's nothing, and I do mean nothing. No praying now. No saying now. There's no Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed to not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have permission to reuse as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is
thinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.